All right. So this morning, what we're going to be talking about is Jesus, <laughs> you know, surprise. And uh, we're talking about this theological term called incarnational ministry, incarnational ministry. We won't use that term, but what that term means is God coming in the flesh. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I mean, here, here's basically the story. God's there. Michelle had already talked about the Holy Spirit uh, with the kids, and there's Jesus, and there's our Heavenly Father, and they're all three, and it's one God. Now, if you're new to the Bible, or you're new to Christianity, or whatever, and you say, John, I, have, I don't understand that. Uh, welcome to my world. Neither do I. Uh, I don't understand how, I don't understand the Trinity, okay? That might cost me my job, I don't know, but I can't wrap my head around it. Well, here's what I do know. At some point in all of eternity, God decided to come down as a man. Okay, now, when I was a kid, I had an ant farm. I don't know if you've ever had an ant farm, but an ant farm is basically uh, two sheets of plastic with sand in there and uh, a lid. <laughs> That's, a lid's very important when it comes to an ant farm. And, um, and, and you can watch it. It's thin, and you can watch all the tunnels that the ants do. And so I, I got the ant farm. I was very, very excited. Um, uh, it comes with a little box of ants that has food in it. And when I opened my box of ants, uh, they were all deceased. Okay, so I don't know if you've ever buried an animal, like a cat or a dog, right? Um, try burying 50 of them, okay? That's what it felt like. And so they were dead. So I don't know how we got more ants. Like, because I, yeah, I think you need a queen or whatever. I have no idea. I was too young. But I just know I put the ants in the thing. I put the food in and they, they started tunneling and you can actually see the tunnels. Now, if I were God, that's exactly how I'd run the planet. I would make all the humans and then I'd sit up either in a chair or I don't know how, but I'd do that and then I'd watch them. I'd watch them scurry around and I'd observe and I'd go, wow, that one's really mean. Oh man, that one didn't make it. Oh, why did they vote like that? Anyway, so that's what I do. And so, uh, and, and that's it. Never in my wildest dreams would I think to myself, I love all these ants. I'm going to become an ant. Um, I'd become an uncle. God. Okay, so, um, so shh, stop it. So, uh, so anyway, that, that's the thing. This is what God did. He, he, he loved us so much. He said, I'm going to come down, take the form of a man, and demonstrate what it's like to do ministry in the flesh, what it's, how it's like to treat one another. So John, one of the disciples, and we're going to be all over the scriptures this morning, just kind of going back and forth. So if you'd like to just, if you're ADD, you're going to love it, trust me. Um, and so John wrote this thing about God. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and he uses a capital letter for that. He's talking about Jesus, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he writes this. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God decided to come down and to dwell with us. We call it the incarnation. He became human. And then John writes this. 
We've seen his glory. In other words, John saw the resurrected Jesus. John saw it out to completion. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full, this is key, of grace and truth. That combination is really hard for humans. It's very difficult to have both grace and truth. Oftentimes, we might err on the side of grace, and we might say, oh, you know, they didn't mean it, they didn't mean it, and then all of a sudden, we find ourselves in an abusive relationship, right? Because we're afraid to look at the truth, that we shouldn't be in that relationship. Sometimes we err on the side of truth, right? You have a well-crafted post that is just ironclad. It says everything you want to say, and it goes after the other side, whoever the other side is, and it is just awesome. I mean, it is just like the world should change once you hit send and you send it and you realize it has no grace in it. It has none. So we have a heavenly father. We have, we have, we have a, a God who sends down the son and has this perfect balance of grace and truth. Don't you want that in all your relationships? I know I do. I know I do. I, 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 I want a marriage that's, that's balanced with grace and truth. I want to have a relationship with my kids that's balanced with grace and truth. I want to work in an environment that has this idea of both grace and truth. Because sometimes we have to say the truth. We have to say something difficult. And Jesus did a lot of truth saying. That was hard. One time he told somebody, if you don't sell everything you got, then just you're not allowed to be around. That's, wow, that's great. But we also know that he uh, looked out over the crowds and he was filled with compassion. There's this, this balance that he had. And that's great for Jesus. And I'm happy for Jesus. And um, I, he did it really well. Because he was God, and I don't know, that might be kind of cheating, but he did it. Ah, until you go to Paul in Philippians. As I had mentioned before, if you're going to read three books of the Bible just to kind of get your feet wet, John, Philippians, James, okay? There, there, there's uh, really a lot of good stuff in, in all three. I mean, and the rest of the Bible, but you know what I mean. So he says he's filled with grace and truth. And then Paul, writing to this church in Philippi, says this, in your relationships with one another, <laughs> have the same mindset, have that same approach. So how Jesus modeled grace and truth in all your relationships, you do the same thing. And, 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 and Paul goes on to um, elaborate a little bit to tell us how that plays out when it plays out. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, which is already a bummer because I'd like to be let off the hook, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus decides, I have it all. I, I, I'm God. And he says, you know what? It's more important for them that I humble myself, that 
I don't hang on to this position of power and authority. Now, he still had all the power and authority when he came to earth, but he humbled himself. As a matter of fact, it says this. It says, and he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He became one of the ants. I wish I had, I should have brought an ant farm now that I think about it. That would have been, that would have been cool. Uh, You can look them up on the internet, see what they look like. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Okay, so, so this is humbling enough. So if I, if I become, if, if I become an ant, right, isn't that kind of good enough? Wouldn't I be the most powerful ant? Like, that's what I would do. I'd come down as an ant, but I'd be like a, like a big ant. Like, I'd be the, the king ant. No, no, no. He's found his appearance as a man. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to death. This is like, I get, I become an ant, I go down to the ants, and they start arguing with me. You don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, I could just pop into human form and throw them all in the trash. He continues on. You know, and and people are arguing with him and pushing back at him. And towards the end, they're yelling at him. And if, if if I were Jesus, I'd be like, look, I can get a magnifying glass. And let me just tell you right now, you guys are going down. He doesn't do that. He becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus became present. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And we're going to see an example of him doing this. I love technology. I think most people who know me know I love technology. Um, I literally can open my garage door right now with my watch, okay? Not to brag, but it's pretty cool. Uh, and I can also, uh, on my computer, on my phone, I can turn my sprinklers on. And I can unlock my front door. And I can see who's stealing all the packages off my porch. And I can turn lights on and off. And I just love technology. Um, but it makes me feel powerful. But we know that with great power comes what? Awesomeness. Because it's awesome? No. With great power comes a responsibility to not be distracted. If I have something that's alerting me here and here and here and on my desk and everywhere, alerting me constantly, giving me updates, giving me push notifications, telling me someone just posted to their story, all these things, it can be distracting. None of this speaks to a distracted Jesus. He was unhurried. He was not distracted. He wasn't rushing around, even in his busyness, because busyness is not hurriedness. There's one uh, um, section of scripture where it says they were so busy they didn't have time to eat. And yet, Jesus still has time with his heavenly father. He still doesn't allow the pressures of ministry to get to him. He's unhurried. He's not distracted. And my prayer for us as we enter into church, you know, obviously in the beginning it'll look much different than it does or had, um, that we will get into this unhurried um, life. 
that we won't be distracted, that in all of our relationships with our family, at, as we ramp back up into business, at, uh, in our church, whatever, in our neighborhoods, that we would come in with having learned something from this pandemic, that our relationships would actually be richer. Um, so, Jesus is going along, and the way Mark writes um, prior to what we're going to look at are, are uh, a couple stories. And one is um, Jesus preaches a sermon. He tells the disciples to get in a boat. They get in a boat, and there's a big storm. And Jesus is asleep because he's not hurried or worried. And um, they tell him, we're going to die. And he gets up, and he's like, What? And he calms the storm. And that story indicates that Jesus has authority over creation. Right after that, he gets out of the boat. And there's a demon-possessed man that's cutting himself and doing all these things. And uh, Jesus heals him, casts out the demons. And that story shows that Jesus is, has authority over the spiritual realm. The physical realm and the spiritual realm. Like Jesus has all authority. And then we get into this next story, and when I say story, they're all true. I'm not saying it's just a made-up story. It's a real story. And um, where he's going along, and one of the officials, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus, comes up to him and says, my daughter's sick. Can you heal him? Now, this is such a great thing for Jesus. Like, like, this is a perfect thing to happen on the campaign trail, if Jesus were being elected to something, which his disciples thought he was, it's like, man, you're, you heal an official's daughter. Now you're in with those officials. You're in with the Pharisees. They're, they've been going back and forth. And now you've, you've kind of like overcome uh, that demographic. You've got it. The poll numbers would just go shooty through the roof. And so Jesus is like, good, let's go. I got it. Uh, no big deal. I just calmed a storm and cast some demons out. So uh, this is like, uh, this is cakewalk. He's going around and uh, it says this. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. No social distancing. They were just all packed in. You can imagine Jesus is like a rock star. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Let me just describe who this woman was. First of all, she's a woman. So in that day, she has no value. Um, she was a second-class citizen. She couldn't even testify in court if she, had, if she wanted to. Second, she's subject to bleeding. I don't want to get into the physiology of it all, but it wasn't her shoulder. And for 12 years. So it means that she was, as far as New Testament law, she was unclean for 12 years, which means she could have no contact with anyone for 12 years. Another check against her as a second-class citizen. Thirdly, not in Mark, but when you look at another gospel uh, on that account, it explains that she'd lost all her money trying to go to doctors. So she's poor. She has three strikes against her. She has no value as far as the community is concerned. 
She truly is just one of the ants, except there's a God who came down, incarnational ministry, is present. So when she hears about Jesus, this is so sweet, she came up behind him and did the unthinkable. This took so much courage or so much desperation. She touched his cloak. She made him unclean. Everything she touched was unclean. She took a risk and she takes, she, Jesus, okay, God comes down. He's, a, he's human, which is crazy enough. And he's jamming around. He's doing all this stuff. And she has the audacity to touch his cloak and to make him unclean. You know why? Because she thought. If I just touch his clothes, I'm going to be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Just one touch from Jesus, not even from Jesus, a touch to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How many more people were touching Jesus? Lots. There were, there were, there, he's surrounded. And yet, she was able to actually have the touch of Jesus do something to her. And so what happens is, Jesus feels the power go out from him, which I have no idea with that. I don't know if it's like Superman and like someone touches him with kryptonite and Jesus is like, whoa, I almost stumbled. Or I have no idea how that went down. Uh, but he feels the power go out of him and he stops and he says, who touched me? And of course, the disciples are like, Jesus, come on, man. There's like, everybody's here. Like, everyone? I don't know. I mean, you know, who is it? And he looks around and he sees the woman. Now, I don't know, again, sometimes I read too much into the Bible, but I just think I know Jesus and I think I know the human uh, condition. And you ever been around kids? And you want to know who the guilty one is? And you say, okay, who did this? And you look as a parent, and you know exactly who it is. I believe that's what happened. And I believe Jesus got a little smirk on his face. She, trembling with fear, comes up, the Bible says, knelt down at his feet and told him the whole truth. Another version of the Bible says, told him her whole story told him her whole story. Have you ever had someone you're sitting down with tell you their whole story and you're in a rush? It's tough. <laughs> you know, they're like, when I was five, and you're thinking to yourself, man, now you're 50, I got 45 years to get through right now? Like, good night. Jesus heard her whole story. The God of the universe comes down in the form of a baby, goes through all of that, goes through his tween years, gets all the way through as a carpenter, decides in ministry to surround himself with 12 dudes, which is, this is a scientific fact. The more dudes you add to a group, the collective IQ declines 
right? So like if, you, if it's like you and your buddy, maybe your IQ's up here. You add a third dude, uh-oh. You add 12, it's like looting, okay? It's like it just it goes off the map. He subjects himself to that because he loves people. And he sits and he hears the whole truth when he's busy. He's calming storms. He's casting out demons. He's got an appointment with a, with a synagogue official, a, a, an important person. And if you're the synagogue official, can you imagine your daughter's dying and Jesus is talking to a worthless person, listening to their whole story? That is the heart of Jesus. Grace and truth. And this is what Paul says he wants in all of your relationships have that same mindset. Because what you have to do is never as important as the person you need to be with, ever. Here's the way I put it. Interruptions just might be invitations. Interruptions might just be invitations to to experience incarnational ministry, to experience um, being with a person that Jesus loves and to be able to see them in the same way that Jesus sees them. To be able to see this woman, not as a woman who's unclean, who's poor, but as a creation of God. She touched the cloak of the creator and he listened to her whole story. So what happens is uh, he says to her, and this language is very, very important as you look at what the next story is gonna be. He listens to her whole story and he says this. daughter. I would imagine if it were me and I were Jairus, I'd go, I have a daughter, remember? Yoo-hoo. She's sick. She's going to die. Remember that? So if you could just stop talking to whoever that is and get over there. Don't we do this to God all the time? <laughs> God's doing a work and I'm like, hello. I don't know if you know this, but I'm running a church during a pandemic. Kind of busy. Let's get chop, chop. Let's get those people healed. Daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus took time for this woman. He was present. He was not distracted. I could just picture the disciples going, oh, man. No, Jesus, we don't have time for this. We got a schedule. Here we go. Daughter, your faith has healed you. So, during this time, talking to this woman, being present with her and learning her whole story, uh, Jairus' daughter dies. And they come to her, him and they say, hey, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Now, if you're him, think about this. Just be real for a second. My daughter is dead because you spent time with this worthless person that has no value in our community or our society. Like, my daughter, my young daughter died. You couldn't get there in time because you've spent time with her. That's what Jesus does. He, he's not on our time frame. And so he overhears them talking and he's like, what? Oh, yeah, no. I, I told you I'd go heal your daughter. So they get there. She is dead. And uh, Jesus says, oh, you know, she's just asleep. Don't worry about it. So they start laughing at him. And he brings in just Peter, James, and John. And he says, uh, 
uh, everybody else out. And he, he, uh, he says, uh, Talitha kum, which is uh, Aramaic for little girl arise. And she does. Because Jesus isn't on our time frame. He leads an unhurried life. Let me tell you this. If God wants you to do something, you will have the time to do it. If, if I find myself, and I often do, with no time to accomplish the things of God, I'm either not doing the things of God or I've filled up my day with a bunch of stuff that were not the things of God. To be present with someone is what Jesus would do. It's, an, it's, a, it's a holy act to be able to sit with them and to hear their whole story. Now, of course, we have boundaries and all that. I understand that. But we don't err on the side of, we don't err on that side. Um, we, we uh, on the side of just being with people all the time. We err on the other side. Our boundaries, we have so many boundaries, we don't even have time to, to talk to somebody who might not even have anyone to talk to. So he heals her and he says he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, which is really weird because when he healed the, uh, the demon-possessed guy, he said, oh, go tell everybody. And then he gives strict orders not to tell anyone about this, which again I find odd because um, won't people kind of know when there's a little girl running around? And he gave him strict orders not to tell them. And this is so Jesus and told them to give her something to eat. Now, I read some commentaries by some scholars, and don't get me wrong, I love scholars. They're very smart. Some my, my, I have good friends who are scholars. Um, but they said the reason that he gave them something to eat was so everyone would know that uh, she wasn't um, a ghost, okay? Which is a great take, I guess, um, except for when I look at Jesus throughout his whole ministry and all the other Gospels, um, he gave people stuff to eat when they were hungry, not to prove they weren't ghosts. They would know she wasn't a ghost when she was playing Frisbee the next day out in the courtyard. Like, there's an easy way to tell if someone's not a ghost rather than just giving them something to eat. Jesus gave her something to eat because she was hungry, because he was present, because he saw what her needs were. And this is the same attitude, the same mindset that Paul demands we have with those around us. What are their needs? Why, what are they trying to say? How can I be present? How can I get from my position of having to get things done, being in a position of being my own God, and then humble myself, taking the form of a servant, to be present with somebody who needs something? He gives her something to eat. Because that's what Jesus does. He's present. Now, we're going to jump to one other verse real quick. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And God's spirit dwells in your midst? So, Jesus comes down in the form of man and then he does present work with real people. And then, where's, where's that box? Oh, then he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now, when we show up with people, God's Spirit dwells in our midst. 
And we get the opportunity to do incarnational ministry. And it doesn't have to be healing someone or raising them from the dead. It could just be sitting with them, listening to their whole story. Thank you.